Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I have decided to propose the appointment of Mrs. McGuinness to the post of Commissioner. She will be in charge of financial services, financial stability and capital markets union. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announcing that she'd picked married McGuinness a veteran member of the European Parliament, to be Ireland's next European Commissioner, following the resignation of Phil Hogan. That was part of a mini-commission reshuffle that also saw Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis take on the trade portfolio. Von der Leyen made the entire announcement in just 1 minute 50 seconds and took no questions. But we'll go where the Commission President feared to tread, dive in in more detail in just a moment. Later in this episode, we'll get you up to speed on why Britain says it's ready to break international law in the latest episode of the Brexit drama. And you'll hear an interview with Twitter's global head of policy strategy and development, Nick Pickles. But first, let's bring in our own pan-European podcast panel. Rime Montaz in Paris. Hi, Rime. Bonjour. Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good evening. And joining us from an undisclosed location, our financial services reporter, Bjarke Smith-Meyer. Hi, Bjarke. Hi, Mia. That's Danish, by the way. I'm in Brussels. It's oh. a Flemish either. Okay, right. Well, you've thrown us a little uh, Nordic curveball there to get started, but we'll move <laughs> on. We, we have you here in large part to discuss um, one of the big Brussels stories of the week, and we'll find out whether it made waves in, in Paris and Berlin uh, in a moment. And that's the uh, commission reshuffle or kind of mini reshuffle which happened this week as a result of Phil Hogan resigning as trade commissioner. Uh, there was some speculation for a while as to how this would feed through into the, the new commission, how President Ursula von der Leyen would choose to handle it. Um, So first of all, she chose Married McGuinness as the new commissioner from Ireland, um, from a field of two. Andrew McDowell was the other uh, Irish candidate put forward. And then she decided that Valdis Dombrovskis, uh, the executive uh, vice president who uh, rejoices in the title of being the guy who is responsible for an economy that works for people, uh, would take on the trade portfolio and McGuinness would become the financial services commissioner. So, Bjarke, just start by telling us what does that job actually entail? Well, anything that, uh, well, I mean, it, it's like in the name, financial services, but that, that will range anywhere from trying to create a US-style uh, capital markets, um, uh, as well as making sure that investors or retail investors, like your mom and pop investors, are, are taken care of. 
She would also be the person to uh, crack down on accounting after the Wirecard scandal, where 1.9 billion uh, euros just disappeared. And uh, she'll also look out for banking. Okay, so just, I mean, for readers who, who or listeners who don't follow this so closely, she's not a regulator, right? But she is responsible for kind of formulating rules that regulators would then enforce. Is that right? I mean, she will be in charge of taking Van der Leyen, so President Van der Leyen's image of the future for finance and uh, taking policy and translating it into regulation. Uh, of course, she'll, she'll have a crack team, uh, a department in the commission that does the heavy lifting of this. But, um, but I'm sure that she'll also be able to feed in some of her own vision into how policy for financial services is also conducted. OK, and then I guess there's the question, how much of a vision does she have? How much of a, a track record does she have in this particular field? Uh, none, uh, which is what's uh, a little bit interesting about her personality. I shouldn't be too cruel. I should point out the fact that she does have a degree in agricultural farming uh, and accounting. Uh, so it's not like she's a total novice coming into this. She has some understanding of economics, at least. Um, but uh, but the point is, and you talk to parliamentary officials, uh, you know, there is there is a massive gulf of, of of information that's missing there uh, or knowledge that's missing there when you compare it to someone like Dombrovskis who has been working uh, in financial services for a really long time. So one of the big things that she will have to answer to when she goes to the parliament for a hearing is that uh, she has the right credentials to do the job. Right. I think it might be agricultural economics she has a degree in, right? Um, yeah, sorry. Economics of agricultural. Yeah, farming. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so she does, as you say, but that's agriculture has been very much, I think, her speciality uh, in her time as an MEP. And she was an agriculture uh, journalist um, before that. So the question, I guess, is how well qualified is she for this specific important post. Uh, Matt, how much of a, how may, has this made waves at all, you know, in Berlin, in Germany? Uh, this is obviously kind of the, one of the stories of the week here in Brussels, but uh, did it, you know, get much beyond Brussels? I have to say that it really hasn't so far. And it's surprised me because along with this reshuffle, some of the other things that have happened recently have gotten really almost no notice in, in Germany, um, at, at least in the, the mainstream media. And it doesn't seem to be something that has particularly occupied the minds of, you know, the, the prominent politicians either. Mm. Reem, how about in, in France? No, this didn't cut through at all. I mean, you also have to keep in mind that France is going through quite a lot of uh, news right now. So this was definitely kind of lost in, in the ether. Um, you know, France is very sort of preoccupied with coronavirus, with the return to school, with uh, issues of insecurity that have kind of taken over the, the news cycle. Um, I haven't seen much, if any, coverage of, of this reshuffle. I mean, I think one other thing, Bjarke, here is obviously that it was a minimalist kind of reshuffle in that Dombrovskis, uh, who already had kind of overall responsibility for all the economic, um, you know, policy areas, basically sort of dropped a bit or is going to drop a bit of that into McGuinness's basket, if you like, but still have overall responsibility. And he'll take on primary responsibility for, for trade, for the trade portfolio. And another reason why I didn't create many ructions here is that one of the things Ursula von der Leyen seems to have prioritised is party balance. She kept the European People's Party in charge of trade. And as I say, that financial services uh, part of Dombrovskis' job 
He's an EPP guy. That will go to McGuinness if she is confirmed by the Parliament, also an EPP politician. But tell us a little bit about Dombrovskis, uh, Bjarke. You did try on the podcast uh, a little while ago. We had your efforts to try and get him to loosen up a little bit when he was talking to you on stage at an event. What's he like as a as a person and... Um, you know, is he a little bit more relaxed off the record? Yeah, I mean, you, you have to realise that, you know, Dombrovskis is two separate people. There's, he very much knows when he is speaking on the job and he also knows when all the microphones are turned off and he can actually uh, let his hair down, for, for lack of a better expression. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, he's he's a robot when he's working. Uh, he memorises dossiers, he really knows his stuff and he makes he takes time to really understand what it is that he's going to be talking about and... A lot of the time, I mean, because he's, he's so, you know, he has a very kind of uh, robotic or technical way of going about things, he doesn't often make for the greatest sound bites. But when you do uh, chat to him, uh, he's quite personable. He's, he's a very nice guy. Um, you know, we've, we've all had uh, Christmas drinks with, with the man before, and he's, he's, he's good fun to talk to. Uh, he knows a lot, um, especially about things that are happening in the background. So he's, he's, he's very interesting. Okay, well, take the microphone to the next uh, Christmas drinks and we'll see if we can get a different Dombrovskis. Anything to say about him taking on responsibility for trade? The fact that he has a uh, financial mind means that when he goes into trade talks with uh, the UK uh, about a Brexit deal or a trade deal, uh, he'll know exactly you know what people are talking about when they're talking about how to create a market for financial services uh, that people on the on the continent can access and and how uh, people or banks or, or markets in London can then approach clientele uh, on the continent so so he's very much plugged into that he understands it perfectly it's also worth noting that you know when it comes to the thorny issue of digital taxes or digital rules for digital transformations he knows that dossier inside and out and and is very passionate about it as well so you will get a a very very uh, solid person in the negotiation chair when it comes to trade okay good all right let's move on to another kind of brussels bubble topic if you like although it is one that i think does does break through and does attract uh, attention to a broader audience and that is the european parliament's uh, monthly pilgrimage to strasbourg and um, which was due to resume this month and in fact uh, the set piece the the centerpiece of that session would uh, have been Ursula von der Leyen's State of the European Union address. But all of that will now take place in Brussels because uh, the Parliament has decided it's not going to Strasbourg, which, remember, is the official seat of the Parliament, even though it does most of its work here in Brussels now. Uh, They've decided they're not going because... Strasbourg has been designated a coronavirus red zone and uh, the Parliament President David Sissoli made the particular point that that would mean that staff and everyone who came back to Brussels from Strasbourg would then have to self-isolate, to quarantine for 14 days and they obviously felt that wasn't really fair. Uh, But Reem, what's the reaction been in France to that decision? Well, today, certainly. So we're, we're recording this Wednesday evening after the weekly cabinet meeting. Uh, the spokesperson for the French government came out swinging and said, you know, this, this decision by the parliament is incomprehensible, end quote, uh, and also that it was taken in a rather unilateral way. They're clearly not happy about this. They care very deeply about the seat of the parliament being in Strasbourg. They're not about to let that go. They're clearly also worried about a precedent because as some of our listeners 
listeners might know, uh, you know, some countries and some parties within the European sort of system uh, have been advocating for a while for the Strasbourg seat to be kind of, uh, you know, cancelled and for everything to just be concentrated in, in Brussels. France is not about to let that happen. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, clearly, in a way, perhaps they're being a bit tone deaf, because as you just said, you know, is it worth it for, you know, the MEPs, but also their staff to have to go through that kind of quarantine when they go back to Brussels? Is it more disruptive uh, for work than it's worth? Right. And I do think there is there there would seem to be a concern that, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about how the pandemic might mean that, you know, temporary measures that we adopt as a result of the coronavirus end up becoming permanent. You know, it's the new normal. And so, you know, we may end up working from home much more often. And of course, the, you know, the kind of parliament's equivalent of working from home is working from Brussels. And that once MEPs get used to just being in Brussels or working from Brussels, it kind of highlights uh, the issues around this uh, this monthly pilgrimage to and from Strasbourg. Well, maybe we can have. We should maybe see if we can get a couple of MEPs on sometime to kind of debate the pro and and contra. But I think the point is particularly well made that most of the people who have to who have to do a lot of the literally heavy lifting around this are not MEPs. They're, they're the assistants, the administrative workers, and the others who have to actually make all this happen every month. And and um, you know, I, I think our thoughts should be with them as well as as well as their bosses. Um, thoughts and prayers. Yes, exactly. Thoughts, prayers, hopes, everything. Um, let's uh, quickly just uh, jump to uh, one other topic, an ongoing topic we discuss regularly: uh, EU relations with with Russia. Matt, we talked uh, last week about um, you know the uh, poisoning of Alexei Navalny, as has as it has been confirmed by the German government, and obviously the issue that's been in focus is. Could Germany actually move to cancel this Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would bring uh, Russian gas uh, pretty much direct to Germany? Um, do you see, you know, any any shift in the mood in Germany on that? There does certainly seem to be a shift in the mood. German politicians, senior politicians are taking a much um, more strident tone on this than we've heard in the past. And that's that's true not just of the the opposition. I think for the first time we're really hearing it from very senior people in the CDU and in the in the SPD. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen though. And I I, I think, you know, the likelihood is that if we see anything, it'll be some kind of a delay. And um, they've asked Russia to investigate itself, basically, um, re- regarding the, the the poisoning, and that clearly is not going to happen. So it, it's not clear what options, aside from sanctions, they that they really have here in order to achieve some kind of an outcome. I think that canceling it would be maybe going too far for most Germans. There there was a uh, poll out this week showing that more than fifty percent of Germans opposed canceling it. It's more than ninety percent completed at this stage, so I, I, I think you know we, we might see some kind of further delay. But I would be surprised if they were to pull the plug altogether. Okay, well, this one we can come back and explore in uh, more depth another time. Uh, but for now, uh, Reem, Matt, and Bjarke, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank thanks. you. Now, before we continue, we just wanted to say thank you. It's been one year since we launched the new version of EU Confidential, and we appreciate every one of you, whether you listened before then or joined us over the past 12 months, whether you're a diehard who never misses an episode or an occasional listener. And we want to hear your ideas for the months to come. 
Tell us what topics you'd like us to discuss, guests you'd like to hear from, maybe even things we could do a little less of. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Now, before we hear from Twitter's Nick Pickles, let's talk Brexit. So joining us now is our chief UK political correspondent, Charlie Cooper. Hi, Charlie. Hi there. So let's get to the the, um, the not easy task we've set you today, which is to explain uh, why a British cabinet minister, uh, the Northern Ireland secretary, said in the House of Commons that Britain would be breaking international law in, quote, a very specific and limited way. Um, I would say to my um, honourable friend that, yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept. So I guess the question is, what's he talking about and why does the British government think that's okay? So it goes back, of course, just to rewind to the Brexit deal that was struck in October last year, which of course contained the, the key section, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was to resolve the thing we were all talking about for several years, the, the, the backstop, the solution that meant you could uh, avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, but also um, guarantee uh, a satisfactory outcome that meant that trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland was, was, was maintained and there was no risk to the single market from goods getting into the EU via Northern Ireland. Now, That was all thought to have been settled by that Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and the Withdrawal Agreement, which is an international treaty. Everything they've been talking about since then is the future relationship stuff, the trade, the wider trade relationship between the EU and the UK. Suddenly, out of the blue, the UK government has given the impression that no, that matter is not closed and that should there be no future trade deal between the UK and the EU that they're going to have to have some sort of special measures in place that they, that the UK unilaterally will put in place to ensure continued the continued flow of trade between Great Britain, that part of the United Kingdom, and another part of the United Kingdom, Northern, Northern Ireland. And that essentially is what Brandon Lewis, uh, the minister who was sent to the House of Commons to say this, meant when he said that, yes, in a limited way, this would breach uh, international law. How would it do that? Can you but can you can you breach international law in a limited way? Is, yeah. is, is, is the obvious question that then that then springs forth, and that's precisely the question that the EU would now like an answer to. And at this stage, as we speak now, they're still seeking those answers. Well, what would did he see? What that very specific and limited way would be? The key thing seems to me that under the terms of that protocol, the Joint Committee, which is the kind of parallel negotiation that's been going on between between the EU and the UK about how that Northern Ireland Protocol will operate, that's where they decide which goods are termed as at risk when they enter Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK of entering the single market and therefore attracting any tariffs or controls that might apply in the UK and EU's future relationship. And what the UK would like to do in the event that there's no trade deal is have the power to say what's at risk and what isn't. And that sounds technical, but actually, when you think about that, that's actually that's quite a big power. But it's profoundly complicated, and the EU is seeking answers urgently. And just in the past few minutes, they've called an urgent meeting of that joint committee. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Right. And and what about the way in which this was done? Um, Because that was quite striking to me. You know, it seemed like Brandon Lewis was was reading from notes. This wasn't just him ad libbing. This was, you know, a deliberate uh, statement to say that Britain would be breaking international law in this specific and limited way. And that just seems as a video clip 
that seems like a gift for anyone, any time the UK or anyone else uh, accuses a country or a government of breaking international law, for this clip to be sent right back to them saying it's okay to break international law, you know, as long as you do it in a specific and limited way. So what do you make of of not so much what's been said, but, but how it's been said? I have a suspicion. So Brandon Lewis, he did seem to be reading, as you say, from from a script. It wasn't an accident. And some have pointed to the fact that in the Northern Ireland Protocol, there are there are mechanisms, much less dramatic mechanisms, whereby the UK could probably address some of the concerns they claim to have. And I just wonder, is this really something that couldn't have been worked out quietly in a backroom between UK and EU lawyers without blowing up? And therefore, is this perhaps a very public negotiating tactic? The counter to that argument is, well, what does this achieve? What, 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 what are they achieving right now by doing this? Right. I'm not too sure. Yeah. Well, of course, the other thing that Boris Johnson is kind of famous for or known for is that I'm trying to remember what's it called. It's where you put the dead cat on the table, like you make a big noise. What's that called again? It's a Linton Crosby thing, right? It, it, it is called the dead cat strategy the dead cat, based on yeah. the idea that um, the debate isn't going the way you want it to. And everyone's talking about yeah. something you don't want you want them want them to. You put a dead cat on the table and then everyone will look at it and say, hey, there's a dead cat. And yeah. so, you know, they're not happy with what you've done, but they're no longer talking about what you didn't want them to talk about. So yeah. maybe there's a bit of that. Maybe it's um, putting the burners on the EU to, to give them a sense of how chaotic things might be if they don't bend a little bit. And it's, uh, it's a really surprising, and as you can probably tell by, by my sense of sort of bafflement and what's happened, a, a confusing move. Mm. And I think everyone's, everyone's trying to pass what they're doing. Okay, great. Well, we'll continue to follow it. And uh, I promise, Charlie, uh, sooner or later, one day we'll talk to you about something other than Brexit. That'd be nice. <laughs> Thanks. For our feature interview this week, we have Nick Pickles, who's Global Head of Policy Strategy and Development at Twitter, a company at the heart of many online battles these days over issues such as disinformation and freedom of speech. Pickles picked up and moved from his one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco to the mountains of Montana two months into the pandemic. And he had a virtual chat from there earlier this week with our own technology reporter, Melissa Hecula. So your team recently tweeted, of course, about how you think the internet should be regulated. And when it comes to content, you said that framing the questions as, you know, leaving it up or taking it down is too reductive. Now, you guys have taken this line of removing political ads and providing lots of context for harmful tweets. So could you explain what sets Twitter's culture apart from other prominent platforms like Facebook, which have chosen not to do those those measures? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, th- this all stems from the view of the company in that, you know, our job is we provide a place for the public conversation. And our job is to protect the health of that public conversation. And so you have to take a big a big ask of what are the risks that that public conversation faces and how do you how do you solve them in some contexts and political ads is a great example it's not the content that itself is the problem it's the the distribution and so we just took the view and, and you know as jack said we just don't think democratic debate is really equipped right now to deal with the problems of micro targeting the problems of um ever-improving audience uh, segmentation and micro-targeting so well let's turn let's turn it off um this isn't this isn't something that we can afford half measures on it's not something that we think we can sort of you know take an incremental approach we took a principled approach that said 
this is a big risk and we should turn it off. And, you know, I think, I think on other areas, as you say, um, we do allow, for example, uh, governments to tweet, um, including governments that, that don't allow Twitter to operate, but we now apply labels so people can see when they're interacting. And I think striking that balance between, in some circumstances, removing, in other circumstances, applying context, that's a really important balance going forward because you're not going to solve every problem on the internet by basically asking the question, should you take this down or should you leave it up? Mm. I mean, one of the most famous examples from the summer was when when you guys added those warning labels in Donald Trump's tweets and took down some of his more controversial videos, etc. I mean, you haven't done the same to an EU leader as far as I know, um, would you? And do you even have like the resources to do that? Yeah, so, so the Twitter rules apply to everyone around the world. And the um, the specific case, and there's actually two different pieces here. One is um, where something like, for example, uh, mail-in voting is being discussed. We want to make sure people don't get confused and get the right information. So we're going to apply a label in those circumstances that helps people you know, click here, get the facts about mail-in voting. And that's that's adding informative context. There's also been circumstances, and actually uh, the first time this happened was with a Brazilian politician, where we say this content breaks our rules. It's the same rule that applies to everybody else, but because of the unique status of the individual who posted the tweet, we think that there is a public interest in that tweet remaining visible so that people can debate it, people can challenge it, people can um, continue to expose it. And you know, we're very conscious that it's one of the reasons why an edit button is controversial is because those tweets are in in many ways the first record of history. And so we want those tweets to be available. But what we do is we put a warning message over the top that says this broke our rules. We stop people retweeting it. We stop people liking it. Um, but we we do allow you to click on it and still see that one tweet. And so we would absolutely apply that to any any politician around the world who who meets the the policy, which is pretty simple. They've got to be verified. They've got to have 100,000 followers or more, and they've got to occupy a a position of public interest. And if you meet those criteria, we will consider putting one of those warnings on a tweet if it breaks our rules. But if the tweet um, is is serious enough that it risks offline harm, we're still going to remove that. Now, if you look at the big headlines in the tech world this summer, you know, you have in Europe, you have the European Court of Justice invalidating Privacy Shield, which for those of you who don't know, it's um, an agreement between the US and EU to transfer personal data. Um, And then in the US, you have Donald Trump calling on TikTok to be broken up. I mean, when you look at these headlines, does it do you feel like this is a sign of the internet becoming more split up? And what can a company like Twitter do specifically to to resist further fragmentation? You're absolutely right. The the open internet um, has never been under more threat from a variety of of policy decisions, some well-meaning, some not. And so I think the big challenge is as uh, policymakers look at individual specific policy issues, whether it's privacy shield, whether it's um, competition, data localization, all of those issues feed into whether the open internet is a healthy, vibrant uh, activity, or if it's slowly chipping away at those principles. And I think one of the hard things for policymakers to do is to sometimes look beyond the problem that's immediately in front of them and understand that you know something like data localization, there may be uh, short-term policy arguments to pursue that, but the long-term impact of changing the way that data is moved around the internet actually does really risk fragmenting the internet into uh, you know continents of data 
that will have a severely detrimental effect both economically and socially around the world. Now, Brussels and the European Commission is is getting ready to to launch um, the Digital Services Act, which is a, a huge piece of internet legislation which aims to come up with new rules for platforms. Now, what are the kind of pitfalls that Europeans should avoid? Well, I, th- I think you know one of the, one of the simple questions is you know looking at the regulatory impact of something like the DSA. Um, does this make the internet more open? Uh, does this actually protect the principles of the open internet from the beginning? What's the internet going to look like in 10, 15, 20 years after this legislation is passed? And so I think one of the the areas where the uh, you know policymakers can look is it's not just about regulating the businesses as they are. In some cases, it might be things like standards and establishing standards for interoperability. So that if you are a consumer, and you want to move between services or you want to connect services, is regulation can help in protecting against walled gardens. Um, what we don't want to have happen is regulators build more walls uh, and make those existing kind of dominant players bigger and harder to dislodge. So I think the the question that I would keep asking if I was a policymaker is, you know, how does this affect small businesses? How does this affect the next Twitters, the next Facebooks, the next Googles? Um, and also, how does this how does this set a framework for internet regulation and uh, internet governance that other countries are going to aspire to? Mm. Do you think Twitter as content moderation policies should be the next gold standard? Well, I think I think one of the big questions that you have to ask is, in the long run, can you regulate content moderation in a world where the two are, the two actions are take down or leave up? Um, we often hear policymakers saying, uh, "We want more transparency about how much content you're taking down." But actually, one one of the challenges here is that a huge amount of the decisions that we're making is content that falls into a gray area. It's probably legal. And then some people might find that deeply offensive. Some people may not. So how do you give consumers the choice to control their experience without having a situation where you either have the same rules across every platform, which I think is is bad for free expression and and bad for competition, um, and you still want the ability, for example, where you know, we might say this doesn't break our rules, but we are going to hide the visibility of it and make it less uh, less visible. For example, it might not be the top of a search result. You know, those kind of content uh, decisions are incredibly important, um, but you can only do that in a world where the options are more granular than just leave up and take down. The European Commission is getting ready to launch its democracy action plan, which will tackle political ads, etc. So do you, what are you kind of looking out for? And do you have any any recommendations on that front? Political ads are such a, a central piece of how modern campaigning happens, particularly online. And you know, certainly when we, we made the decision to ban all political advertising, it was not just because we felt that political advertisements themselves were bad. It was because the means of delivery, uh, online advertising, both with very specific micro-targeting, um, very, very, you know, potentially very carefully uh, selected audiences, but also the the use of AI and ML to constantly improve on both the the targeting and also change the message of the ad. So you have very very subtle changes, um, you know, potentially hundreds if not thousands of adverts running at the same time from one political party. And so I think if you're going to have a a robust action plan to protect democracy, political ads have to be in there. You have to understand that in some in some circumstances transparency isn't the only solution. Um, and actually, you do need to have uh, clearer regulation, both so that the public know who is spending money um, and you know 
making sure that third parties and dark money can't use uh, online ads to sneak in, but also you know making sure that the regulations that apply are, are applicable for the modern social dynamics of how the internet works and protecting the public conversation for an election. But then more broadly, you know, we've spoken about things like making sure that political parties aren't taking money from dubious sources abroad, um, that things like you know, when, when hacked materials are released, that domestic media don't amplify those materials. So there's a number of different areas where the modern political um, conversation is vulnerable. Political ads is a very tangible area to start, but there's a role for everybody to play, whether it's political parties, mainstream media, and governments. Uh, and I hope that the, the holistic approach that the Democracy Action Plan uh, can pull together is going to build on the, the great work that the Commission's already done uh, in the codes of practice uh, and the, the public reporting from companies, which have been a world first and have really, I think, informed the policy debate in a huge and really important way. Great. I have actually one more question relating to Privacy Shield. Is Twitter shipping data uh, to the US from the EU? Well, so, so we, we have um, infrastructure that's far smaller uh, than our peers. And so, you know, we do have uh, data centers in the US that run our service. Privacy Shield is definitely not the end of the debate. There's more work to be done. Um, and we're going to be, uh, you know, engaging in that as a smaller company, recognizing that actually, you know, you can't have a situation where the solution to every problem is build more infrastructure in certain countries um, and only be able to um, do business in certain places if you've got infrastructure there, because that undermines the sort of global scale and competition that the internet brings. If you look at all of these policy areas in isolation, the solutions may seem relatively straightforward. Okay, so we solve privacy by moving all European data into Europe and that way you can't leave. The problem is that that example then says, well, normalizing data staying in certain places is a good thing. It's it's a thing that just is part of how the internet works. And then the danger is, well, that's what happens in, in Russia. That's what happens in uh, China. That's what happens in countries who don't protect their citizens' rights. And so I think this question of how do you how do you address the short-term policy problems in a way that doesn't undermine the long-term policy objective, which is protecting the open global internet? And I think that that balance is something which the, the solutions that may seem the, the easiest and the simplest for the problem that's in front of you may actually make the long-term strategic challenge harder. But certainly if somebody works on them every day um, at a company like Twitter, you know, it's, it's definitely a case of, of treading carefully and looking five, ten years ahead, not just looking at the problem in front of you. Thanks very much to Melissa for bringing us that conversation with Nick Pickles. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review, and be sure to click subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast. That way, you'll never miss an episode. As mentioned, you can always email us feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu, and we try to respond to every message we get. The next episode in your feed is another edition of Campaign Confidential with Ryan Heath. That's our pop-up series on the US elections, which will land next Tuesday. And we'll be back next Thursday as always. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.